Good morning, everyone. This is the Wake Forest student-run podcast, Values and Ventures. Our goal is to make you a better leader than you were yesterday. With intelligent and unique guests, we aim to make a substantial impact on people each and every day. Today, our guest is Kevin Keller, who is the founder of Fulton & Rourke, a men's grooming company. Hi, welcome to Values and Ventures. I'm Kushi, and I'll be your host today. I'm here with our special guest, Kevin Keller. How are you, Kevin? Doing well, Kushi. Great. Well, Kevin is an entrepreneur in residence at the Center for Entrepreneurship at Wake Forest University. In fact, I'm currently in one of his awesome classes where he guides us on launching our own ventures. He's also a deke. He got his MBA from Wake in 2013. Kevin and his classmate, Alan, started a men's fragrance and grooming company, Fulton & Rourke. With a focus on thoughtful design and a new take on fragrance, Fulton & Rourke has been featured in major publications, including Forbes, GQ, The Wall Street Journal, Business Insider, and so much more. It is currently sold in more than 425 finer men's stores, both domestically and internationally. Thank you for joining us today, Kevin. I'm so excited for our listeners to get to know you. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. To kick us off, could you tell us how you had the idea of starting your own company? Yeah, you know, I um, went to business school thinking that I would probably go into HR. I like people a lot. And uh, truly, I loved journalism where I've been working, but it was just an industry that was in a lot of trouble. And uh, I've made it through the worst of the recession, but just couldn't really imagine it was going to be a sustain sustainable career path for me. So I thought the HR or marketing both sounded really interesting. I kind of uh, stumbled into those things while working as a journalist. And when I got here, uh, I kind of discovered entrepreneurship and certainly had not thought of myself as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. But as I was talking with uh, one of my professors, you know, he said, didn't you say that you just cold called uh, a radio station when you were 17 and asked to work there for free and just figured it out? And I said, yeah. And he said, and didn't you start a radio show all on your own? And I said, yeah. And he said, and didn't, didn't you start a television pilot and all that up and running and I said yeah and he said yeah you're kind of an entrepreneur already you just didn't know it and I said oh yeah I guess so like we tend to have a very narrow view of what entrepreneurship is so that kind of got the wheels turning for me and in the meantime I found my uh partner uh who was just a classmate of mine we worked really well together and he had always wanted to be an entrepreneur and uh you know, had a notebooks and notebooks of business ideas that he'd had over the years. And uh, we started kicking around the idea and um, we had several different ventures that seemed like they would be worth tackling that we thought we could do well. But we both found ourselves really annoyed by the product offerings and men's grooming. Just it was we thought it was really uncreative, uh, despite the fact that guys were willing to try new things. And it was um, just there wasn't much out there despite there being a lot of demand for better and new products. And so we thought, I think we can do this. So that's, that's how we got started. Right. That's awesome that you found the right people at Wake to help you get started. Yeah. So when did you exactly start and how long did it take for you to make your first sale? So we started kicking around the idea in the spring of 2012. Um, mm -hmm. 
we had a list of different ideas. Uh, funny enough, one was basically MeUndies, uh, which of course has exploded. Uh-huh. Uh, they probably have done it much better than we could have. Uh, but we had we had a number of ideas, um, and but by by the time school let out in 2012, we pretty well narrowed it down to let's explore this men's grooming thing. So we spent, we both had internships that summer, and uh, after our internship, we would uh, meet up at my partner's basement and uh, try to uh, figure out. Uh, fragrance and figure out uh, ingredients and we were reading like crazy on the on the area and uh, just kind of devoted every hour that wasn't at work into um, figuring out that business so uh, really May uh, of 2012 is when it got started our first revenues were August of 2013. Oh, wow. So what were the early days like when you were just doing it as a weekend project? Well, they were hard. You know, I, um, I got married right before going to business school. Um, and, um, you know, I, that's, that's a lot to ask of a partner, um, like a, a romantic partner, mm-hmm. uh, to say, hey, let's get married. We got married, picked up the moving truck the next day, moved from Atlanta to Winston-Salem, where we had no friends, uh, for me to quit my job for two years so my wife could work full-time. Um, and then, uh, you know, said, oh, by the way, as opposed to getting a really steady you know, my long-term goals of getting a really steady paying, high paying job, those might go out the window and maybe I'll try to create some new kind of fragrance that nobody's ever heard of. Uh, so, uh, my wife was unbelievably gracious and supportive, but, um, you know, that was kind of the only hobby for a while. And, um, you know, I, I had, really enjoyed uh, exercise and things like that. All of that kind of fell by the wayside as I, because uh, I, I was in school full-time, I worked part-time uh, for the company that I'd eventually get a full-time job with and then was doing this as well. So there was just very little time for any other stuff. And um, that was that was really hard, but uh, luckily my, my wife was game for the experiment um, and we got through it. Wow, that sounds stressful, but it's amazing you made it. <laughs> so what were some of the biggest challenges you faced business-wise in the early days? Uh, well, you know, part of it was that I had been a journalist and uh, before going to school. And um, I, the reason why I didn't want to be a journalist anymore was not because I didn't love it, but because I didn't have any money. And despite being pretty good at my job... I just, you know, and, and being in a top market and all that, uh, there just wasn't a whole lot of opportunity for money. So I started business school, took out a bunch of student loans, had no money, and then tried to start a business still with no money. And that that's hard. Um, so trying to do everything on the cheap was really challenging. Um, because, a lot of times it would have been just cheaper and easier and, you know, save a lot of time to just, for example, float the money and hire somebody to start selling product for us or go get, find a sales rep to do it for us. But we didn't want to spend the money. I, I just couldn't spend the money. And uh, that that 
in the end, that challenge um, led us to be really disciplined and led us to be really good listeners to our customers because we couldn't afford to screw up uh, and <laughs> try all over again. Um, and so that that was a big challenge that I think um, actually helped us in the long run. Yeah, that's fantastic. So what kept you going despite all those challenges? Well, it was really fun. Um, you know, I think that's one of those things that people often forget, like even uh, one of my uh, mentors one time um, at a company in Mar uh, here in town said to me that he thought that people really got it wrong when they talked about work-life balance in that if you, we act like your work and your life should be totally separate and that you need to protect one from the other. When in reality, if you really love what you're doing for work, then it shouldn't, you shouldn't feel like you're depleting your, your energy for your life by doing your work. And that was really true for me. I found that I, I was really energized by the work and, you know, I actually loved working uh, I mean, there's certainly hard parts about it, but I really liked working a full-time job uh, that was, you know, with some big corporations uh, while I was doing that because it allowed me to stretch different parts of my brain. Um, on one hand, I was making million-dollar decisions uh, with money that wasn't mine. <laughs> and on the other hand, I was making, you know, hundred and thousand-dollar decisions with money that was mine. And both of those are very stressful for different reasons and require you to think really differently about money and about risk. And um, I actually love that. That's amazing. I like that perspective a lot because I agree. I don't think that everything that you do for work is boring or is just a part of your work life and it can be fun because I too find joy and fun in the things that I do for work sometimes. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think we understand that when we talk about exercise, like exercise is nothing but stressing our bodies for a period of time. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, our bodies are better for that stress. And, you know, people talk about stress when it comes to work as exclusively bad. I don't see it that way. Um, you know, I think that stress is, is you know, uh, your mind doing hard work. And, uh, and you get better at it and you learn how to manage it well. And, and, um, you often are better for it if so long as you don't just do the equivalent of running back to back to back to back marathons or something in your professional life. Um, you know, you, you recover, you, you're energized by it. You feel better the next day. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. Yeah, I definitely agree. So I know this because I pay attention in class, but I would well, love thank for you for that. <laughs> but I would love for our listeners to hear from you where the name Fulton and Roar came from. Oh sure, yeah. So uh, when we we have real, uh, we're both pretty opinionated when it comes to design, and we both really liked the idea of uh, as we were kind of planning what our company would look like and feel like. We liked this idea of very minimal design, but also um, kind of a, a time-honored sense. And what what we what we were really aiming for was uh, when we launched Fulton and Rourke with all of our design uh, aesthetic to, for it to be really unclear to people: is this a brand new 
company or is this a company that basically has been around for a hundred years and I just didn't know about it and maybe they've had a reboot or something like that. Uh, because, you know, solid fragrance is actually a thing that had been around for a long time, but had just kind of fallen out of fashion because it hadn't been done that well previously. And so we thought, well, we don't want to just go buy an old, because you can, you can, you can actually, uh, there are sites that will allow you to just buy old, um, copyrights and, and trademarks uh, from companies that are defunct. But we wanted something that was authentic to us. So we decided that the better move would be to just try to create uh, a name that kind of sounded uh, old and established, but it still meant something to us. And so initially we were tossing around, among other things, our last names, but we decided that Keller and Schaefer sounded like a law firm. Uh, and so I, I jokingly said, should name it after our dogs, Fulton and Rourke, because they have way better sounding names than we do for this. And Alan laughed and we just said, well, that can just be our working title until we think of something better. Well, we never thought of anything better. And so it came time to uh, really the deciding factor was on our cologne cases, we have our initials on them, and uh, it came time to submit that design to have them made. And we had to put something on there, and we said, well, I guess it's going to be Fulton and Rourke. Let's do FNR. So that's what we did. Well, I'm sure your dogs are proud of you. <laughs> I hope so. So what's Fulton and Rourke's business model? Uh, well, we're a mix of wholesale and uh, e-commerce. We initially were only wholesale. Um, we just couldn't imagine that selling fragrances that no one had ever smelled in a format no one had ever heard of would do very well. So our original game plan was kind of to zig when everybody else was zagging. Everybody else was going to an e-commerce only model. And we thought, well, this will be interesting. Let's We see a lot of white space in men's boutiques. They were really kind of thriving at the time. Uh, so we did that for a while, but we also uh, got pushed actually by reporters saying, hey, we're covering you, but you really need to have a place where people can buy online. So we set up an online store and it was lucky we did because at this point we're, um, if you don't count the last year's weird pandemic situation, We're about 75% e-commerce and 25% wholesale. So uh, e-commerce has become a much bigger part of our business. That's great. So were there any decisions that you made as a business owner that required courage? Uh, you know, quitting my, my full-time day job was, was really scary. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think, I honestly think... Uh, without sounding too self-aggrandizing that telling anytime you tell somebody a goal that you have, that's going to be hard to accomplish, I think requires a lot of courage, particularly if you're the kind of person who uh, takes that kind of claim seriously, you know, whether it's telling somebody, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try to do a 10 K in 44 minutes or I'm, you know, going to try to lose 10 pounds in the next two months, or I'm going to start a business and be a millionaire, uh, <laughs> whatever it is, you tell people those goals and it's immediately a, a huge opening to vulnerability, I think, because 
you know, and the more people know, the more people can watch you either succeed or fail or, or just struggle in the meantime. So I, I knew, I mean, there were, there were people in my business class that I knew were making fun of my partner and me for this dumb idea. You know, other people had these big grandiose ideas or payment processing startup ideas or medical ideas that were going to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. I had plenty of classmates who probably will someday be CEOs of big companies and lots that were already showing lots of promise. And here my partner and I were starting a, a grooming company for men that just, you know, especially to, uh, to particular fragile male egos seemed effeminate and silly. And, um, so I knew that people were laughing at us and, uh, not everybody, you know, the majority of people were supportive, but I knew people were saying things and, and, you know, there were a few competitive classmates of mine that I knew were, you know, hoping that I'd fail. And, um, so uh, that was, you know, uh, somewhat challenging on its own, although it's also really motivating to me when somebody's rooting against you or when someone says they don't believe that you can do something. But the, the day that I walked off from uh, a really solid paycheck at a really good company, um, to do this full time and, you know, in, in doing so cut my pay by more than 50%, um, with no guarantee of success. And, you know, I don't really like to call my courageous seems a little much, but, uh, it was, it was difficult. Yeah, I definitely resonate with that. Even with my venture, I know once I tell it to people, I'm going to put myself out there and be vulnerable. And even now, whenever some packages get delivered to my suite, I call it my super secret project. And my yeah. suite mates are dying to know, but I just want to make more strides before I just tell it to everyone. And I'm still trying to gather that courage to do so. Yeah, it's it's a hard thing to do because, you know, you, you can't take it back. And what I've, what I've come to believe is that, um, there's something really powerful, the, the most interesting and the most successful entrepreneurs that I meet are the ones who right up front, you know, like the guys who've, or, or women who've launched a number of companies will say, well, you know, I've launched six companies, uh, two did okay. Uh, two were pretty successful and two just absolutely crumbled and, and, you know, are totally fine to just say that right up front and tend to want to talk about the failures even more so than their successes. Um, because naturally I think we tend to think about our failures and, and why they went wrong more than why things went right. Um, uh, and so being able to own failure, like there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if you, if you're, uh, I, you know, I have, it's kind of a truism, but I used to have a boss that said, if you're not failing in anything, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. So I'm, I'm all about owning the failures, but I know it's hard to do. I mean, I, I'm right there with you, Christian. Yeah. Humility does go a long way. Yeah. So you mentioned all these challenges and would you say resilience is at the core of entrepreneurship? Uh, you know, it's maybe I've never thought about it as resilience more so. 
um, kind of a plan B, but I think resilience is, is a good way to put it. Yeah. The more I think about it. Yeah. So in class, you talked about seeking honest feedback from customers and engaging in a trial and error process until you get it right. Mm -hmm. Would you like to share more about the importance of doing that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I say a lot that the most important class I've ever taken as it related to entrepreneurship was seventh grade science class for me, where we learned the scientific method, particularly when you're trying to... Um, have a lean startup uh, or, or run a startup with very little uh, upfront capital, you know, you, you can't afford to make big, huge mistakes. And you also can't afford to take a long time to make mistakes. You want to, because you will make mistakes. So you want to make those mistakes quickly. You want to make those mistakes cheaply so that you can pivot as fast and as cheaply uh, as possible. Um, and, and so uh, I think for one, you know, really good customer feedback is, is crucial so that when you're doing those trials um, that, that you're starting off with a solid hypothesis. But then two, you know, I love, I love the phrase minimum viable product because um, to me, that's, that's so huge. Can you show it to a customer? And it just has to be good enough the customer that the customer says yeah i get it I'll, I'll buy that i can i can do that and then you can say cool what's what's not good enough about it uh unfortunately for us um you know we were doing things with die cast metal which is pretty big fixed upfront costs and so we had to get a lot of things right before we had our true mvp but, you know, we had lots of fragrances just in little, you know, sample makeup tins and things like that. So the fragrance we had and, you know, we had sketches and renderings to show to store owners. And so that was all trial and error, getting, getting their, uh, their approval there. And then, you know, we, when we were doing initially as we were selling to wholesale, we did a trade show to kind of kick things off for us. But then we spent a lot of time nights and weekends just sending cold emails to store owners. And we'd usually just look up like lists of best stores, both by the country, by different categories, things like that, you know, mining places like GQ and Esquire for best stores. And we started figuring out what's the best kind of pitch. And my having been a, a writer, I tended to write, you know, big, long, beautiful poetic emails suggesting that, you know, uh, people work, uh, consider like picking up our, our line and quickly realized because we were measuring well, that actually really short, Hey, I'm Kevin with Fulton and work. Can I send you some product to try? I think it'd be a great fit in your store. Love Kevin was a much better pitch email. And so, uh, you know, I think surrendering ego is a huge part of that as well in addition to just paying attention yeah it's great that the, you had the humility and the growth mindset to take that feedback in a positive way and use it to improve your product and your emails instead of being defensive and fixating on one idea that might not be as viable as you would have thought it was well you know everybody wants to be steve jobs and you've probably heard me say this before but i i actually think that the mythos around steve jobs is terrible for entrepreneurship because we're not Steve Jobs. And 
honestly, most of the time, Steve Jobs wasn't Steve Jobs, uh, the the mythical person we have that knew better than all of his customers and whatever. And we're we're much much better off just surrendering our ego and just paying attention to what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. Well, shifting gears a little bit, how did the pandemic affect your sales and your team? Not well. Uh, <laughs> with uh, with wholesale, uh, it was it was a tough year in that uh, you know all the stores that sold us uh, were not uh, you know we weren't in grocery stores, we weren't in Costco's, we were in you know really. Uh, nice men's boutiques for the most part and, you know, uh, vacation oriented kinds of stores that, uh, that just didn't really need to be open in the middle of the pandemic because nobody was interested in, you know, finding a really great looking blazer or super cool, uh, polo or whatever. So, um, you know, our, our sales on the wholesale side, which is our more profitable side of the business, uh, basically went to zero for, uh, six months, which, um, as you might imagine was, uh, difficult, but, um, we, uh, were somewhat lucky and worked really hard and, um, you know, our e-commerce business continued to, to grow. So we made up for the, uh, loss of revenue, um, on the e-com side, although, you know, we, we, uh, did not make up for it entirely on the profit profitability side. We, we weren't even really shooting for that. So we, we came out healthy. We came out strong, uh, but you know, such as life, we, we started the year off just like coming out of a cannon. It was, it was the best January from March were just amazing. And, uh, and then March, you know, the middle of March happened and, um, plans changed, but that's, that's how it goes. Well, I'm glad you're doing better now. Yeah. Um, so what are some of your upcoming goals for Fulton and Rourke? Well, we've, again, uh, I suppose, uh, we're still always pivoting. We've, um, we've changed directions a little bit in the last, uh, probably six months or so. Um, we do customer surveys from time to time. We of course are always looking at our sales data and we found that despite our efforts with products like, uh, shave cream that one GQ's grooming award for best shave cream on the market and our daily moisturizer, like a face lotion with SPF that I honestly think is better than anything I I've tried. I can't say that about, you know, there are a lot of products that I think, well, that's subjective. This, I just <laughs> I feel like it's, you know, genuinely better than anything else. But, uh, people weren't super interested in that. We've, we've learned that, uh, new customers and current customers really see us as a great fine fragrance company. And so we've really pivoted away from some of our skincare products, which we're proud of and which we liked. And if, if we were Steve jobs, <laughs> you know, we would just double down and not give up on that. But we've, we've pivoted away from some of those and instead work to create more of a, a system of fragrance. So, allowing for coordinating deodorants and body lotions and shampoos and uh, bar soaps that, that match with your, your preferred fine fragrance. So 
we've we've changed directions in that way. Uh, early data says it's it's looking good, but as always, we'll keep monitoring, keep seeing what people think. I keep looking at both the the hard and the soft data and figure out what we do next. Interesting. Out of curiosity, does Fulton and Rourke have a mission statement or values? Uh, we sort of do. We we have a, a you know customer facing statement that explains what we're about. Um, you know, really, um, and I think we have a pretty clear understanding. Um, we haven't, and it's it's on our website in the about us section, but. You know, internally, um, you know, I think it's it's pretty similar to what what our outward facing statement is, which is that we want to uh, make people look and feel and smell their best without being overly complicated. We want to have impeccable customer service uh, and treat all of our customers um, as though they're really important because they are. They're the only reason why we're here. And uh, we want to be good people to work with. And uh, we want to be profitable while we're doing all those things. Awesome. So what's the biggest lesson you've learned as an entrepreneur? I suppose it's that... uh, That the majority... uh, It's led me to have more faith in people. Uh, especially early on, I was amazed. You know, I, I talked a little bit about how there were people rooting against me. Um, but that is really is so minor compared to the number of people who wanted to help and who went out of their way to see how they could help. I had, you know, friends who, like our the guy who designed our square, I think he would have done it for free. So, you know, we, we didn't let him. But because but he's just excited for us. He thought it was a cool idea. You know, we were just trying to figure things out and he just wanted to help. And uh, we had a lot of people, um, professors, friends, family members, um, really acquaintances who were just so excited that we were trying to do something and wanted to help however they could. And, um, you know, that's. It's a big deal. It's, you know, it's it's been a weird year politically, um, and I think it's so easy to get kind of pessimistic about humanity. But uh, starting a business, in a lot of ways, <laughs> you'll certainly find some some uh, people who aren't great. But far and away, people are are pretty great. And um, so I think that's probably my biggest takeaway. That's so wholesome. <laughs> so since everyone is not as lucky as me to be in your class, what advice would you give young entrepreneurs aspiring to start their own business? Uh, go, like get started. Um, you know, I think not everybody's experience is, is mine. And I've been really lucky to uh, in, in a million different ways from the obvious, you know, where I'm born and, you know, the family I was born into and all that. And, uh, and, and lots of less obvious ways too, but 
I think for most people, um, your level of obligations tend to just go up as you get older. So, uh, when I was, um, right out of college and when I was in college, I, I worked full time while I was in school full time. I always took maximum number of hours. Um, and the reason why is because I didn't have anyone else who needed me. It, you know, it was all my time. And, uh, when I graduated, it was kind of the same thing. I worked like crazy and, uh, was super devoted to my job, which I loved, but I'm so glad that I did that because now I'm, uh, I have, uh, a four-year-old daughter and I have a, a newborn son and I, uh, have an amazing wife and my parents have moved here and, um, you know, I owe it to them to be around and to, uh, spend time with them and, and do things with them. And, um, and I can't just work all the time like I did. And I also owe it to my family, uh, to not make high risk, uh, financial decisions anymore. But when you're 22, odds are relative to the rest of your life, you can't screw up that bad so long as you stay out of jail, you know, like go work really hard. Uh, you have all your time is your time. No one else owns your time. Uh, in most cases, I know that's not true for everybody. So go do it now. Go, uh, make those high risk moves now before you have, uh, you know, a spouse or, uh, a child, that you, whose you know, financial well-being and and um, mental well-being you have to consider. It, like now is the time to be super selfish. Is my advice. And and it, life isn't going to get easier um, in in terms of times to start a business or at least time to really throw yourself into learning what you would want to learn to go start your business. Plus, if you're at Wake, you have all these resources from the library with tons of research that you would, would be expensive later to professors who are geniuses way, way smarter than me who can help you with all kinds of things. So like now is the moment as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I definitely agree. That is fantastic advice. On that note, I want to thank you again for joining us today, Kevin. I'm sure our listeners got a lot out of this conversation, just like I did. Fulton & Rourke is an awesome company, and I would highly recommend our listeners to check it out. Where can our listeners find Fulton & Rourke, Kevin? Uh, the easiest place is just our website, Fulton, F-U-L-T-O-N, and Rourke, R-O-A-R-K.com. Perfect. Well, thank you again for It was a pleasure, Christian. I hope you have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. We believe that this podcast has the potential to make a change in people's lives and have an impact in the world. Our mission is to help people with disabilities and special needs feel more recognized within society. We resonate with the mission of Moji Coffee in downtown Winston-Salem, a business that employs individuals with disabilities, or as they say, with different abilities. Please join us in empowering and celebrating these individuals by grabbing a cup of coffee and spreading smiles at Moji. Thank you for taking tuning into this episode of Values and Ventures. Don't forget, we can change the world and make a difference today by empowering those around us. See you next time.